0: Today, before us on Walk in Truth Radio, is the famous story of the rich young ruler. And in this account, Jesus introduces a child and says we must have the faith of a child. Well, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus confronts his false god, which is money. And in the interaction, the rich young ruler walks away sorrowfully and Jesus let him go. Stay tuned, that's today on Walk in Truth Radio. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're looking at verses 13 through 31. The first will be last and the last first. Look at verse 13-13. And they, the people were bringing, Mark 10, 13, children to him, that's to Jesus, so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. It could be they rebuked both the parents and the children. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, Mark 10, 14, and he said to them, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You might want to make a note that in Luke 18:15 and there's a parallel in all three what's called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all three gospels have this and it says that they were bringing infants to Jesus or babies. You know, we we do baby dedications here and it's so sweet when you know the little child is dressed up in their Sunday best and the little boys often have a tie on, the little girls have a pretty dress on. And in times past, I've sometimes paraded the child down the aisle, everybody, ooh, ah, ah. And the child, usually, you know, they want to mess with my microphone, but they look at you with just such these weird <laughs> And they study you. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's almost like there's a silent communication that goes on with little kids. You know, they stare at you, and you stare at them. You know, and you, you just kind of revert. Anybody revert? I start speaking baby language, you know, all that stuff. Anyway, very cute. Jesus loved children. And and it, it appears that families lined up, so picture families lining up with little kids, probably infants or toddlers, and this is, you know, they're so cute at that age, although they have their moments, we know, but, you know, they're just learning how to walk and that kind of thing. That's probably the age group that Jesus was dealing with here. And as parents lined up, they wanted Jesus to bless the kids. And this was something traditional in Israel. They would take kids often to a prominent rabbi and they would ask the rabbi to lay hands on the child and bless the child. And there's a patriarchal blessing that runs all the way through the book of Genesis. You can find it in Genesis 48. I think it's around verse 14, where even Jacob is blessing his grandchildren. And it was the idea of conferring a blessing. And this was a big deal in Jewish culture where, you know, kind of the patriarch of the family would speak blessings and he would even prophesy over the next generation. And so people, you know, hearing about Rabbi Jesus, he's a healer, he's a miracle worker, nobody speaks as he spoke, they wanted him to touch their babies, and wouldn't you? I mean, if you had a young one and, and Jesus was around, I mean, certainly this is something that I would want to do. And it interests me that this particular section comes on the heels of what Pastor Chris spoke on last Sunday, which is the issue of divorce. And it It's an interesting connection, I don't know how much to make of it, but right after the subject of divorce, then Jesus is blessing little kids. And when I went back and listened to Pastor Chris's message, he had mentioned that probably all of us have been touched in some way by divorce. In fact, there's books that have come out that we live in a divorce culture. And uh, I don't know about you, but my personal story was that my mom and dad divorced when I was four years old, and I never saw my father again. He called me one time on the phone in 31 years, and then I found out that he died on an Ancestry website. And I was a little shocked to find out that, you know, I confirmed his social security number, and when I had found that information, he had died three years before I came across that information. He was, he was already long gone. And so um, I just want to encourage you that Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows, is God and His holy dwelling, and we hear those verses, and and we certainly you know take refuge in them. But I think it's interesting to see that Jesus was blessing little children, and He said, "You don't don't you keep them from coming to Me." And if you've been a person that's maybe fatherless, or maybe you come from a broken family, or you know that's part of your story. Um, The Bible goes on to say in Psalm 68.6 that God sets the lonely in families. Maybe that's a reference, at least uh, in part, to adoption. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. And so the people were bringing children, look at Mark 10.13 again, so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus, when he saw this, he was indignant. Jesus didn't just correct the disciples on this. When he saw the disciples rebuking the parents and perhaps the children, something like this, don't bother the master. Don't, don't know. He was indignant. He said, do you don't keep those little children from coming to me? I think little children were in many ways a breath of fresh air to the Messiah. Because he was dealing with all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of sin, all kinds of nonsense, all kinds of maneuvering among the religious leaders. And I think when little children came to him, he was probably lightened in his heart. After all, he's moving very quickly now towards the cross. He's about to die for the sins of the world. He's about to endure that terrible shame. And maybe the little kids were, for him, a respite. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I think they were thinking the best, like, don't drain the master. He's always busy. People are always vying for his attention. People always want to touch him. And Jesus was like, don't you keep those little kids from me. Little kids are refreshing. Some 85% of believers, by the way, trust in Christ before, between the ages of four and 14. I'm going to say that one more time. 85% of believers trust Christ between the ages of four and 14. Um, After the age of 30, it goes down to about 4% of people. So if you want to talk about child evangelism, if you want to talk about whether or not you should be involved in Bible release time, if you want to talk about the importance of a Sunday school teacher, you want to talk about the importance of uh, vacation Bible school, don't underestimate it, you guys, because the little children are precious to Jesus Christ. And uh, most people make their decision for Christ before the age of 18. D.L. Moody once returned from a meeting and reported Two and a half conversions. Two two adults and a child, I suppose, someone responded. The host responded. No, said Moody. Two children and an adult. The children gave their whole lives. The adult had only half his life to give. And I know some of us, you know, when we come to Christ at a later age, we, we sometimes have a regret. And the regret is that I couldn't give him more time. So if you're a young person here and you know the Lord, may I challenge you to redeem every moment you have that God gives you for the gospel and for what Christ has called you to do. We could even say this in light of the walk for life that happened yesterday in our city and all the children that are sacrificed on the altar of abortion in our country simply because it's legal, it's sad, it's a tragedy. Some of us have made the mistake, some of us who didn't know the Lord or maybe you even knew the Lord and you went through an abortion. I'm not here to bag on you or condemn you. But I'm saying a country that can continue to abort children better take a look at its heart. And we better measure what we do by God's standards and not man's. I don't care what's legal in a court of law. We, had, we better be asking questions about what God cares about. And God loves little children. They are very precious to him. Uh, Historian Alvin Schmidt points out how the spread of Christianity and Christian influence on the government was primarily responsible for outlawing infanticide Child abandonment and abortion in the Roman Empire. Do you know they found a letter? It's a letter that dates back to around the time of Jesus, maybe a little earlier, where a husband is communicating with his wife and he's kind of a Roman or a Hellenist. You know, he's from Roman Greek culture and he, and his wife is expecting and he writes her a letter. He's traveling and he says, if a boy is born to us, good, keep it. If it's a girl, cut her off or kill her. The view on children in Hellenistic society was brutal, and the Christian church in the Roman Empire actually had a huge part in their influence in changing those values and treasuring children. In fact, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, said that childhood owed as much to the gospel as womanhood. In other words, when the Christian gospel was manifested in the Roman Empire, and for that matter, any part of the world, women were elevated, children were elevated, families were elevated. And of course, this goes all the way back to Jesus, who treasured women, and women supported him in his earthly ministry and were around him and were there at the empty tomb. And Jesus's, you know, tender touch upon children. Uh, Irenaeus, the great church father, said, Jesus came to save all by means of himself, who through him are born again unto God, infants and children and boys and youth. He therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, a child for children, and a youth for youths. Jesus Christ loves the little children, and so should we. And Jesus was indignant the, the word indignant in verse 14 is a combination of a couple of Greek words. It means to grieve much, or he was much grieved, or he was greatly afflicted. The word indignant has the idea of a mixture of grief and anger. You want to know what made Jesus angry? The disciples looking down on little children and trying to hinder them. Jesus said in an earlier message that you and I studied a few weeks ago that it would be better that a heavy millstone be hung around somebody's neck and he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Then he stumble one of these little ones from who believe in me, uh, if he stumble them or keep them from me. And so we can see Jesus' tender love for the children. And so he he wanted them to come. And indeed, I think the little children were drawn to Jesus' love. Uh, Those of you who are considering marriage and family, you might want to watch how your potential uh, the, the person that you're dating or thinking about how they treat children. Jesus said, don't hinder these little kids, verse 14, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 26 years and um, when uh, she has a, a brother who's now in heaven and uh, her brother died of leukemia, tragically. Um, you know, it was, it was way back, uh, you know, some 50 years ago now and i remember one night we were having a conversation about her brother and she was you know kind of hurting over that loss and uh, her brother died right in front of her he was i think 5 or 6 years old and uh, we took some we took some solace in this verse that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these and there were little little infants coming to jesus and you know jesus said if unless you become like a little child you're not even what going to enter the kingdom of heaven and you've got to humble yourself like a little child Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael. Really appreciate you tuning into the broadcast today. I'm going to tell you about a website that we have. It's a brand new website. It's called walkintruth.com. And on that website, you can find a new devotional. It's a video devotion called A Step Closer. The intention is to help you get a little bit closer in your walk with Jesus Christ. So go today to walkintruth.com. Scroll down on the video devotion called A Step Closer And our prayer is that it will get you a little bit closer in your walk with Jesus Christ today. He says these words, truly I say to you 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you might want to note this, shall not enter it at all. Now, whatever this means, it's pretty important. (laughs) Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not, what? See, the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven, so we should try to understand that. What do we know about a child that might give us some insight? I think if you were to boil it all down, we could talk about trust, we could talk about all those things. Maybe that a child is not pretentious, they'll just speak their mind, they don't think about all the angles of that kind of stuff, but I'll tell you this, if you think about infants and babies in this context, or little toddlers, here's what how a child comes, Completely dependent, resourceless, they must depend fully on their parents to take care of them. And I think what Jesus is saying is unless you come like that, unless you come like a child who has to wholly depend upon the grace of God to be saved, you're not coming at all. That, my friends, is a sobering insight. And he took them, that is the children, verse 16, in his arms and he began blessing them and uh, he was laying his hands upon them. I think here we can clearly see Jesus was hugging them, probably had a child in his arms and he would place his hand on their head and he would speak a blessing to that little kid. Probably some pretty cool eye contact. Wouldn't you like to have some footage of how Jesus interacted with kids? Did he look at them and go, I don't know. But he was blessing them and he was holding them. Jesus touched them. He loved them. Man, how we need touch. It's so important, appropriate touch, hugging. Don't stop hugging and kissing the ones you love. Never stop. I still kiss my boys and they have five o'clock shadows. It's a bit painful to me and to them. But anyway, we won't go there. Now, the man that is about to come to Jesus is a quite a contrast to the little kids. They're resourceless. They, ha, they must come in total reliance upon their parents and God. But the man who's about to approach Jesus, a very familiar story, is the opposite. He's young. He's rich. He's a ruler, self-assured, living a pious life. Here's how the story goes. As Jesus was setting out, verse 17, Mark 10, on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him, so the posture is encouraging, and he began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a great question, and I don't think this was necessarily flattery. I think it was a legitimate question. Some people say maybe he, he spoke it in macho terms knowing who the man was, that he was very self-assured, very, very successful man, But he's got a question, and this is the question of all questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you want to know? Do you want to know how Jesus responded? In John 6, the people said, what what, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, John 6, 28, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has what? Sent. What God wants you to do is believe in his son. He wants you to believe in his historicity. He wants you to believe in his death and resurrection. He wants you to believe in his current high priestly ministry. He wants you to trust his son. He wants you to trust the sacrifice that the father made on your behalf. And so he calls him good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? You might think of this man as maybe waiting in the wings as Jesus blessed the little children. As Jesus made his statement, unless you become like a child, you won't enter into the kingdom. Maybe he was waiting there. Maybe part of the rebuke of the disciples was something like this. Hey, kids, don't bother the master. There's important people waiting over here to talk to him. Maybe somebody like the rich young ruler. But he bided his time. He waited. He heard Jesus preach, obviously. Maybe he saw signs. Maybe he was waiting in the wings and his moment was there. There was a bit of an opening. And so he comes to Jesus Matthew's account, he says, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What do I have to do, Lord? What good thing? You know, a lot of people in our culture are asking what good thing or things must I do? If you go and interview people on the streets of Corona right now, you put a microphone in their face and say, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Most people will appeal to their own goodness. Most people will say to you, I think I've been a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl. And then they'll start to tell you what they've done. And sometimes it includes that they have a neighbor who goes to church and they're not even as bad as that person. They've actually said that about a few of you in here. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But you know, people are... Uh, what we call uh, sometimes in American evangelism that we have to overcome is what's called good person syndrome. People default to the fact that they think they've done enough good to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's been borne out in Hollywood movies. The good guy ends up in the light and, and you name it. But it's not just in our culture. It's in every world religion, every ism that's based upon your good outweighing your bad. Laws of karma in Eastern religions, or even in Islam, good angels and bad angels on your shoulder, and, and you've got to have enough good works to outweigh your bad works. And it, and it, it runs through every thread of humanity and religion, and, and the reason is, is because it's something in us that we can do. It's something I can control. It's something that I can appeal to something that I've done. In the Mormon church, it's you know, 20 laws and ordinances that you must keep. In Jehovah's Witnesses, you gotta go door to door. And I could continue to name for you what people do. In some religions, it's what you did in your past life that's catching up to you now. And all these things run through threads of humanity, and people, they, they appeal to these things. And Jesus challenges the man's assertion. He says, verse 18, Mark 10, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some liberal skeptics of the Bible say, here it is, Jesus is denying that he's God. No, he's not. In fact, I believe he's affirming that he's God. I think what he's saying to the rich young ruler is if you call me good, are you ready to deal with the implications of what you just said? Because no one is good except God alone. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. Now, we call, we say that's a good man or that's a good woman. Oh, the Bible says that we can have goodness in us. Don't get this wrong. The Bible doesn't say that there's not a good man or a good woman. I could give you verses on that from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Those verses are there. But God alone is intrinsically good. What does that mean? That means within his very nature, he's nothing but good. God is good. And by the way, Jesus affirms God's goodness. In case you wondered, and some people do wonder. People wrestle with the problem of evil in our world, and they say, if God is good, if God is so loving, then why? And then you fill in the blank. But Jesus said, look, God is good. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. God is good. He is good. The Bible says this over and over and over again. No one is good except God alone. And Jesus is appealing really now to the standard of of righteousness or good, which is only in God. You know, the Bible says there's no one righteous, no, not one. We all all lack goodness. We all miss the mark. That's, That's the issue. And Jesus calls him good teacher. And Jesus confronts him. He wants I think what Jesus is doing is is he's trying to say to him, look, if you're going to call me good, are you willing to deal with the implications of what you just said? Jesus appeals to the goodness of God and something else that's good in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. He says to the man, I'm assuming now that this man is a Jewish man, You know the commandments, do not murder, commandment number six, look at verse 19, do not commit adultery, that's commandment seven, do not steal, that's commandment number eight, do not bear a false witness, that's commandment number nine, do not defraud, that's probably commandment ten, honor your father and your mother is commandment number five. So Jesus gives them commandments five through ten. And this is interesting because the Bible says in Romans 7, you can look at Romans 7 about verses 7 through 14, the Bible says that the law is good. And the reason why the law is good is because God is good and the law comes from God. Amen? Amen. These are God's commandments, not man's, God's. And by the way, there's battles in America now everywhere whether we should have 10 commandments posted in places. Do you know why? Why? Because some people say that if they're posted, people will look at them, and if, they, and if people look at them, they might be influenced by them. <laughs> like, uh, don't kill people, and don't commit adultery on your wife, and don't steal stuff, and don't covet, and don't lie. You know, I know those are questionable things. Maybe we shouldn't be teaching them to the young people today know how good they're doing today. (laughs) Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Man, once you remove the law, what do you got? If everything becomes relative and subjective then we're in trouble. You hear the story, you know, a professor, a Christian professors telling a story and he says, yeah, back in the dorm in college, we were having debates about relativism and relativism basically says that everything's, you know, truth just depends on how you look at it. If it's true for you, then it's, I'm so sick of hearing that. If it's true for you, it must be true, but for me, <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't do voices like that, but that's sometimes how it comes across. And you're like, shh, Shut up. (laughs) I don't know if that was from the spirit of the flesh, but you'll have to determine that. What do you mean if it's true for me, it's true? So they're having a debate in a college dorm room, and the the young college student, full of relativism from our, you know, much of our teaching in society, says, uh, all truth is Relative. Is that an absolute statement? See, as soon, as soon as you say that everything's relative, you've just made an absolute statement, and you've just contradicted yourself. So, the young man, budding uh, Christian professor, takes the man's uh, boombox out of the dorm room and begins to leave. And he goes, "Hey, hey, what are you? Hey, that's mine." And he goes, "Well, uh, my truth is that I can take other people's stereos whenever I want." Are you going to now appeal to a moral absolute like thou shalt not steal? You see, this works when we're just talking about, you know, subjects, maybe we're having a cup of coffee, but it doesn't work in real life. The commandments sound pretty good when someone's trying to steal your car or cheat with your wife or kill you. Then it's pretty good to say, you know what, there is a law that says you shouldn't do this. This is Walk in Truth Radio, and we have the privilege of coming over this station to you. But the privilege does have a cost, and we just want to take a moment to let you know that we want to thank you for praying for us and partnering with us. There's a way that you can give to this radio broadcast. We do have some wonderful open doors. If you can give to the ongoing ministry of Walk in Truth, radio ministry of Living Truth, we deeply appreciate it. Uh, when Oscar and I walk into this studio and we have Cameron doing recording for us, none of us get paid to do radio. We're doing it because it's a passion. Here's how you can help us out. You can go to walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Click on the Donate tab. You'll see a picture of Pastor Michael there. Make sure that when you go to the PayPal account, you indicate that your gift is for radio ministry. If you'd like to send a gift, you can send it to livingtruth one zero zero nine. Arsenal Way, think of the armor of God, Corona, California, 92880. Again, that is Living Truth, 1009, Arsenal Way, Corona, California, 92880. If you have any needs that we can help you with, you can always give us a call. The office is open on the West Coast here in Southern California, Tuesday through Friday from 9 to about 5 in the afternoon. Our number is 951 735-2856. 735-2856. You can find out all that information and directions to the Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona by going to our website. If you're ever in the area, we'd love to have you come and worship with us. This is Pastor Michael Lance. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, walkintruth.com.